Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamic Book Reviews. This is a weekly session in which I interview Omar and Shasi on his latest readings. I'm Usama Al-Athami at the University of Oxford. Omar is uh, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Edinburgh and one of the most uh, sort of voracious readers in our field, uh, if I may say so. And uh, he, we're going to today be discussing a book by Hilary Kalmbach uh, called Islamic Knowledge and the Making of Modern Egypt came out last year and Omar will introduce it um, for about 10 to 15 minutes. Then I will um, launch into a discussion with him about the book uh, for about maybe half an hour, followed by Q&A in the last 15-20 minutes, inshallah. So we welcome participants to uh, ask questions in the comments, um, uh, whether it's on Facebook, uh, YouTube or Twitter, and it should come up on our system. Uh, and we will be able to respond to those and as ever we also welcome feedback if you'd like to attend these regularly please remember to subscribe follow like um, depending on the platform and you'll get notifications inshallah when we're up next but without further ado please i'm going to take us away with the book inshallah. thank you Usama. Uh, this is a, a very important book really about the formation of modern egyptian culture uh, focusing on education and its relationship to Egyptian culture, and in particular, uh, an institution known as the Darul Uloom. The Darul Uloom was established in 1872, follows, following a series of public lectures convened by uh, Ali Mubarak, who served in various government ministries, Minister of Public Works, Minister of Education, so on, Egypt's first minister of, native Minister of Education, I should add. And uh, it explores the debates about this institution and its history uh, up to and, and slightly beyond its folding into the uh, institution then known as the Egyptian University in 1946, or founded as the Egyptian University, now uh, Cairo University. It was known also as Fouad University at one point. And uh, it explores this institution, its history, uh, the place that its graduates had in the formation of modern Egyptian culture and uh, in particular debates as well about, uh, about this institution and its place. Uh, it's kind of a hybrid institution. And theoretically, she draws on uh, Mikhail Bakhtin and his notion of hybridity. Hybridity can be intentional or it can be unconscious. And I'll kind of unpack this later. As we progress, the meaning will become clearer. And also, she draws extensively on, on Bourdieu and his notions of social capital and, and cultural capital and so on, you know, uh, much as Michael Chamberlain does illuminatingly in his book on, on, on medieval uh, Islamic education. Uh, the book is divided into uh, a very long introduction, or unusually long, you could say, and four body chapters. The introduction kind of lays out uh, some of the context and the theoretical bases of uh, Hillary's argument. And then you have chapters uh, the first explores the relationship between civil and religious education in Egypt from 1811 to 1900. Uh, the second chapter explores uh, hybridity and social and, and, and intellectual capital, uh, especially on the Dar al Uloom from the period 1871, shortly before its foundation to 1900. The third chapter focuses on similar dynamics from the period 1882 when the British are effectively ruling Egypt uh, until the beginning of the, or shortly before the constitutional period and uh, in 1922 uh, when uh, Britain uh, unilaterally 
declares Egypt's independence while retaining control over military and security affairs, the Suez Canal Zone and the Sudan. And uh, the final body chapter explores uh, what Hillary, I think, rightly refers to as culture wars during Egypt's constitutional period from 1923 until the Free Officers Revolution in 1952. So as we've said, Osama, you and I in previous sessions and in discussions privately, uh, one cannot escape Egypt <laughs> for, for, for good or for ill, uh, indeed. So um, the Dar al-Ulum is an interesting institution. Uh, until about 1900, by the way, it is quite tiny in terms of faculty and student body. But it is uh, different from Al-Azhar because it is a civil institution. So um, she, she discusses different approaches to pedagogy and the 19th century and beyond critique by Europeans, uh, including Lord Cromer, Consul General of Egypt, from 1883 until 1907, the kind of longest tenure in, in this uh, office by any British official. Uh, and uh, what, what kind of critiques do people make of the traditional Islamic education of, say, institutions like Al-Azhar? She says it is um, seen as audio-centric, as opposed to modern Western education, which is, is said to be uh, ocular-centric. So uh, although textual sources and uh, you know, do certainly play an important role uh, in, in uh in Islamic education, as she cites Gregor, uh, Gregor Schola and uh, Conrad Tarshla to kind of demonstrate this. But orality never loses uh, orality in terms of speech and orality in terms of uh, the, the sense of hearing, never lose their importance to this day in Islamic education. You know, uh, An autodidact, as we'll perhaps find out next week, uh, is condemned as a sohufi, somebody who just reads books and is liable to misunderstanding them. Uh, so there is this kind of critique and that it's, it's too focused on memorization and so on as opposed to actual understanding and analysis, whereas uh, modern education in its Western connotation is said to be ocular-centric, so texts should be self-explicating as opposed to reading your know, naughty mutun. Uh, textbooks should be relatively clear and easy to understand. Uh, so these competing approaches to education. Now, the approach of the Dar al-Ulum is distinctive because it is a hybrid institution. It takes in graduates of the Qutab and the kind of religious uh, system of schooling and retains an emphasis in its curriculum throughout this period, even you know, until and even beyond its uh, enfolding into the Egyptian university in 1946. It retains this focus on the linguistic sciences and also uh, the kind of Islamic, uh, there is a significant uh, part of the curriculum devoted to Islamic sciences. She says there's about a 60-40 split in terms of civil to religious and, and linguistic subjects. Um, so one, one interesting point she makes is that it's kind of a mistake to overemphasize the distinction between the so-called secular and uh, religious uh, phases of Sayyid Qutb's writing. So Sayyid Qutb, I should say, Hassan al-Banna and Taqi al-Din al-Nabhani, the founder of Hizb al-Tari, these are all graduates of Dar al-Ulum. So uh, culturally, it had a reach and an influence that far outstrips that of the kind of Europhile intellectuals such as uh, Taha Hussein or Ahmed Lutfi Sayyid and so on. 
So uh, it's a hybrid institution. And uh, she talks a lot about dress and sartorial norms. Now, in Egypt in the early 20th century uh, and beginning of the late 19th, you know, one's status, one's education was visible in the way one dressed. Until 1927, the graduates of the Darul Uloom wore turbans and gowns, they, and they were addressed as sheikhs. Uh, the graduates of the civil school system, which Muhammad Ali had begun to set up in the first half of the 19th century, the very first uh, Middle Eastern state to establish a system of civil schooling, uh, incidentally, uh, the graduates of such schools were uh, addressed as effendis, and they wore tarbushes and European-style suits. Uh, so this is very interesting. What happens in... Uh, and so it, it's curious that because Sayyid Qutb and Hassan al-Banna graduate after 1927, they are tarbush uh, wearing effendis. Had they graduated just a few years before, they would have worn turbans and been addressed as sheikhs. Now, uh, so there's lots going on in terms of the sociology of knowledge and knowledge production here. Now, the hybridity of the Dar al-Alum was a great strength, and it was also drag, uh, attacked by uh, Europhiles like Taha Hussein, it's, uh, of course, an Azhari himself, although he never obtained his Alemiya degree for reasons he describes in his memoirs as kind of politically motivated. Uh, Taha Hussein, is, in his influential 1938 Mustaqbal al-Thiqafa fi Misr, very influential text, condemns the Dar'amis as neither sufficiently learned in the religious and linguistic sciences, as the Asharis certainly were, he would acknowledge, nor were they sufficiently modern for his tastes. So it is a hybrid institution, but one of the points Hillary really insists on rightly is you cannot study social and cultural change without paying attention to the guys in the middle. The ultimately, ultimately, and uh, you know, she, she does explore that, that you know, she mentions the 2011 revolution and the Islamic revival of the 1970s, the culture war is not won by the Europhiles. Ultimately, is what it is, you know, it is, you could say the, in the conclusion of the book, she says the, the secularization of Egypt, especially under the free offices in the 50s, is really a veneer. Uh, and, and we shouldn't focus uh, not, not, neither on, on the, only the solely the most important and prestigious graduates of the Darul Uloom, like Banna and Qutub. The Darul Uloom contributed many hundreds of graduates who went on to serve as teachers. Hassan al-Banna himself, of course, was a teacher. Uh, as teacher trainers in the Darul Uloom itself, it's really a teacher training institute. Uh, and as uh, low and mid-ranked bureaucrats in the Ministry of Education. So th these are people exerting behind the scenes an enormous influence on the formation of uh, modern Egyptian culture. Uh, so th this is fascinating. Hopefully this gives you a very brief taste of what the book is about. Obviously there's much more to unpack and discuss in the episode as we continue. Right. I mean, uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful sort of overview and um, I think a very compendious overview, very very useful, gives us uh, a good feel. And as you say, the introduction is quite long, and it does give that overview in a very helpful way. I think um, so. Um, it's it's a good way of getting that um, uh, snapshot of uh, of the text. And I, I must say, um, this is a book kind of close to my heart in the sense of its subject matter, <laughs> because um, I'm very interested in this kind of hybridity. I work, um, you know, much of my uh, doctoral research was on Islamism. And 
they are precisely, I think, these kinds of um, hybrid uh, people. Uh, you've mentioned Qutb and Banna, and I don't, I don't deal with sort of that early uh, tradition. I, I do fairly recent tradition, but among the scholars I'm interested in is someone like Muhammad Imara, uh, who is also Rami, uh, who completes Thanawiya at the Azhar, but then he uh, said also, and Dar um in case it, uh, people have forgotten, is not one of those, uh, uh, is one of those terms that is used to uh, refer to the graduates of the Dar Yes, so uh, they have uh, the Dar al-Aloum, I, I think to this day, to a lesser extent, because yeah. when it's incorporated in, into what becomes Cairo University in yes. 1946, it, it's an independent faculty, Kulliyat right. Dar al-Aloum. Yeah. So even though it becomes uh, integrated into what's, you know, at the time, Egypt's highest um, institution of of, yeah. of civil education, not religious right. education. Right. She says it subtly transforms the boundaries because Ta Hussein's mm. great argument in, in Mustaqbal mm. al one of his many arguments had been that, you know, we should not study Arabic through complex grammatical sciences, with, you know, whose pedag pedagogical methods have not changed much in the last thousand years. I mean, right. um, or, you know, in the late 19th century, even the civic school system studying and memorizing Al-Fiyat ibn Malik was still important, for example. Right. Uh, he says, we should study this, the Europeans do, through the study of literature. So the introduction of the Dar al-Uloom into the Egyptian university yeah. uh, kind of affects this, this boundary shift. And right. if you're studying Arabic to this day, you still have these kind of pa parallel tracks for approaching right. the Arabic tradition through this traditional approach of study of grammar and linguistics and rhetoric and so on versus a right. kind of more literary-oriented approach. Right, right. And I mean, it's, um, it's interesting because Darul Alum even today has this impression of being a kind of Islamic faculty within uh, the university, of course, um, that has close ties with the Azhar and a lot of the people will sort of be crossover um, uh, individuals. Uh, yeah, I mean, including teachers uh, in some instances, as, as, I'm, uh, as far as I'm aware. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so in the late 19th century already, she says, the prestige of Sheikhli learning, if you like, right, right. had already come to be diminished. And this is something we're obviously very aware right. of in our, in right, our right. own lives and period. Uh, and when the graduates of Dar al as a result of a kind of sit-in protest in 1926, and troops are called to kind of enforce right. Press regulations right. on their campus. Let's give a bit of background to this. Um, you know yes, why so, that, that was taking place. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so in in uh, in the years preceding 1926, uh, a number of Dar al Alum students had begun to adopt uh, Effendi lifestyles and habits, right. including right. wearing turbans and suit uh, tarbushes and suits. Right. Um, and in 1926, there is a student protest. Government yeah. troops are called to enforce right. the dress code. And ultimately, in 1927, this is resolved when it is uh, decided that Dar al-Ulum graduates can dress uh, and be identified as Effendis. Effendis and Sheikhs, these are terms that emerge in the late Ottoman period. These are kind right. of formal titles right. in Egypt. And they relate to different forms of education, yeah, really. Yeah. So now we kind of refer to people as Effendi and Bey and all of this, right. uh, and yes. even Brins, casually. <laughs> yes. uh, casually. But these were actual yeah. titles in, in, you know, in, in, in the Ottoman, Ottoman period. Yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to highlight one one feature, which I, you know, 
we know this is uh, happening and I've personally you know had much anecdotal evidence about this sort of diminution of the status of the sheikh so to speak but she talks about it quite explicitly which I find um, you know I need to um, you know uh, find these uh, in the literature a bit more uh, carefully and this is something perhaps I can discuss with you on my, at some other point but you know she talks about the fact that you know the sheikh was now seen as this kind of lowly um, almost despicable at times like you know doesn't contribute anything to society or is not very worthy and also that if you're labeled a sheikh rather than an effendi i mean this is closely related to the previous what i've just said your opportunities for finding uh, good work in the civil service or in you know a professional setting are greatly diminished and you know this is part of i think the way in which um you know, the Daramis are trying to create this hybrid space. I, I would interpret that move to move into the name of the Effendis rather than being referred to as Sheikhs, as she does, you know, specifically as relating to employment opportunities and social status. But at yes, the same so precisely. time, they're trying to, I mean, hybridity in the sense that's taking place is they're trying to bring respectability to the sorts of uh, hybrid studies that they're engaging in so that religion is not completely excised from, from the education process. True, yeah. true. So yeah. Dara Alum uh, students received a substantial amount of training in, in Arabic and so on. I mean, uh, one thing that, that is important to bear in mind is that they, they, their curriculum does not include training in European languages. Right. Now, clearly for me, this influences one's entire educational outlook yes. and one's cultural yes. horizons. Yeah. Uh, it's no do, coincidence. Do you know if this is the case to this day by any chance? I would be very surprised the if it still is the case. Um, no, but I mean, for instance, even, even Al-Azhar, I mean, the kind of reform process she discusses, including reform of Al-Azhar uh, right. in, in numerous periods, right. especially uh, after the student riots in the Syrian Rewaq when there's a, an attempt to enforce quarantine measures, very topically, in 1896. <laughs> right. There is, uh, after that, Hasuna and Nawawi kind of tries to hurry through reform of Al-Azhar, and of course, uh, Muhammad Abdu is extensively involved in reform of Al-Azhar, and it's a process that continues. And the kind of formalization, by the way, of Azhari education is a process that unfolds you know, throughout the late 19th century. Right. In 1872, for the first time, you have a Alamiya degree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she says, well, into the 20th century, can you, people continue to pursue their own path in Al-Azhar. Right. Uh, although admissions was centralized and bureaucrat, you know, formalized yeah. in, in the late 1890s. Uh, but it's a process that continues to unfold. Of course, Nasser reforms al-Azhar in, in the early yeah. 1960s as well. So it's, it's a very different institution from, from what it was. Can I quickly ask, uh, this is kind of slightly off topic, but I remember um, you recommended me reading uh, Memoirs of a Dervish, if I recall correctly, by, um, I forget his name now, the chapter. Robert Owen. Robert Owen, yes, of course, and um, you know that he uh, either there or for lust of knowing, uh, obviously a bit of a controversial text, but uh, he talks about the way in which um, Oxbridge uh, had fallen behind, so to speak, I think, uh, by the 18th or 19th centuries, yeah, and so yeah. it would be interesting to engage in a kind of comparative assessment of when examinations come into a place at like Oxbridge, because a lot of the time the students going to Oxbridge as well seem to just be languishing and not doing very much as well. In, yes, in, I mean, in, uh, for instance, the 18th century, I was once a student of European intellectual history. I know from the biography of Thomas Robert Malthus, right. uh, 
that in the 18th century, Oxbridge was, was far behind. If you wanted a yes. modern education, yes. you would go to places like Haleybury Gen College, which trained East India College officials, economics and history and law and so on. Sorry, which college? Haleybury College. Which is based uh, it's, It still exists. Hartford's okay. here, I believe. Okay. Uh, or you'd go, if you wanted a serious academic scholarly education, you'd go to Germany and perhaps Paris. For example. Right. Yeah. Now, one thing she, she doesn't really say, so Europeans, including missionaries like this figure, Dr. Lansing, of course, Cromer, uh, make these critiques of Azhari education. It's all based on rote. This is culturally obsolete knowledge. Things right. we still hear today, of course. Right. Um, and this critique is internalized by Egyptians and internalized by and the, the, the Dharami system or the, right. the Dharal Alum education is ocular centric. It's like modern, modern European mm -hmm. form of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Instead of memorizing Al-Fiyat ibn Malik, and she talks about Hassan al-Banna was kind of doubtful of his command of the poem, unlike Qutb, who was much kind of more confident in it. Um, you know, instead of memorizing Al-Fiyat ibn Malik and hearing its commentary, you would read the modern textbook on Arabic grammar. And by the way, one of the most important ways in which Dharamis Dar contribute to the formation of modern uh, educational culture in Egypt is by authoring textbooks, which, which they do a lot of from the 1920s onwards. Um, you know, including in Arabic and, of course, other, other subjects as well. And, you know, that way they're able to influence the whole orientation of, uh, of, of Egyptian education to this day. Right. Uh, it, it, yeah. In a sense, um, I mean, the reason I mentioned the Oxbridge connection to a certain extent and, and the way in which, you know, these kinds of anguished conversations are taking place in some of these parts of the world as well, but... You know, when it comes to dealing with the uh, colonized territories, uh, they are naturally obviously seen as inferior by the colonizers. And so, you know, the fact that they are cast in this way, you know, this is obsolete, etc., is quite, you know, fascinating. It's, uh, to, to my mind, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm speaking anecdotally here, it does seem to be a case of, you know, um, the exercise of power ultimately, rather than a, a, any kind of um, proper assessment. So of she mentions, yeah. if I remember rightly, that into the 1960s, you know, you would, you would literally read out your essays to your tutors yes. in Oxbridge you and then receive oral today. feedback. Yeah, yeah. bizarre. <laughs> I, these places, yeah, I, of course, Edinburgh, we're much more modern. But anyway, uh, I mean, now yeah, we're she, encouraged she, to give written feedback, certainly. But. Of course. <laughs> But I should say there are parallels, I and mean, she doesn't mention this, but you do have Orientalists who, who immediately hit on the parallels. So um, that book by, excellent, excellent book by John Walbridge, The Caliphate of Reason, uh, he talks about the, the Orientalist Gottlieb Leitner, who is re uh, responsible for the construction of the Walking Mosque, this elaborate building you may have visited in, outside of London. Right. Uh, and Gottlieb Leitner works in South Asia, not in the Arab world. He, he, he comes across South Asian ulama, and what does he say? He says, the education these people are receiving is exactly the equivalent of a, classical, a good classical education, right? right. Instead right. of learning Greek and, and, and Latin, right. you're learning right. Arabic and Persian, yes. even though these aren't the languages you speak necessarily. Right. Uh, and and well, into the, you know, well into the 20th century, I don't, know, I don't understand how these British colonial officials miss this fact, you know, the elite is still receiving a classical education. Our current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is the product of a classical education. He studied classics at university. So, yeah, you know, I, I think there's, there's a good reason they miss this, and this is part of that sort of, um, you know, uh, colonial... <laughs> 
precisely sort of context and, yeah, and, uh, which, and which creates a kind of myopia on some of these sorts of questions precisely and, the, and yeah, yeah i mean i you know i don't have the fortune of, of classical education in germany you still have the gymnasium system which does emphasize right. you know right. knowledge of the classical languages right, right. And this is extremely, schools. extremely oriented towards memorization. Hmm, hmm. John Stuart yeah. Mill in his memoir complains about you know, be, being <laughs> beaten as a father. child, so he would yeah. wake up and learn his Greek and his yeah, Latin yeah. and so on. He had panic attacks so there, or something. Yeah, there, there's a clear myopia and a kind of double standard in, in this critique, Sure, sure. But what, uh, to uh, some extent. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and it's great that now scholarship can be a lot more reflective about these sorts of things, and, and, and this is something uh, which hopefully will act as a corrective. Of course, there's also the challenge that um, these sorts of attitudes and um, you know, presuppositions are actually carried into popular culture very often and they, they continue to be there. And this is the sort of attitude, of course, which still pervades, um, for example, South Asian and Arab cultures very often yeah. with respect to the sort of scholarly classes uh, of the ulama. Yes, so to speak. and we yeah. can even think uh, of potentially parallels to the Darul Alum experiment, if you will, like the Netwa in, in South Asia, which strikes right. me as, I forget the slogan of the Netwa, but it's something like combining between Al-Qadim Al-something and Al-Jadid Al-Nafi'a. So very much, it's a, it's a hybrid yeah. vision. It's a hybrid vision. Now, yeah. ultimately, the, the critique is the, Dara, uh, the Netwa ends up being just a good, a good seminary with better Arabic, ultimately. Right, 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 right. So, but, but, you know, this, uh, and why, why, why is this hybrid identity important ultimately? Because it allows graduates to perform modernity and authenticity in ways that most Egyptians would find compelling. You know, most right. Egyptians are not swayed by the, the Europhile inclinations of uh, people like Taha Hussein and Ahmed Lutfi Said. Right. They find this, this other performance much more authentic to, to, right. to their own kind of perspective. I mean, it, it's interesting because you also talk, spoke about the um, the chattering classes, the the elites, the Ahmed Lutfi Sayyids and Tahsin. And I mean, I, I just wanted to remark that in your introduction, you did say, you know, the the cultural reach of the Khutbs and the Ibn uh, Al Bannas were far greater. And I, I think that might be overstating the case in the sense that, of course, Tahsin became the Minister of Education. He was extremely influential. You, you spoke about his that's, 1938 book and so on. So, that's and true. Ahmed Lutfi Sayyid, of course, is this massive figure in Egyptian nationalism and a major journalist and, and political figure and so on. So, you know, it's, that's it's a contest. Yeah. But I should say, she says that historians have made the mistake of accepting the claims of the Europhiles almost at face value. Right, right. Uh, right. Because, you know, and even and even the book is not focused on because I see a question relating to this. The book is not focused on Ben and Kutub at all. Yes, it draws on their memoirs. Right. So, uh, for instance, Hassan al Benna was one of the two students in Darul Alum after 1927 who did not wear the tarbush immediately. So everyone else switched to the tarbush. He continued to wear the gown and the imama. Right. Yes, I've seen pictures um, of him wearing that, which is very different. Yes. Now, like because because they're hybrids, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They engage in what she called in cultural code switching. So, graduates of Darul Alum sometimes will dress as uh, in their imamas and so on and yeah. present themselves as sheikhs, and other times can pass themselves off as effendis. And, I mean, you know, it's, it's the, funny because I, I do some of that myself, of course. I mean, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yes, and, this and, hybridity is something we still live with, of course, yeah. in different. I ways. mean, on on Sundays, uh, very often I'm teaching at the uh, Mahad al Salam, uh, the Al Salam Institute of Muhammad from Nadwi. Not, you know not consistently but very often so i'm wearing the sort of hat of a sheikh and on weekdays i'm teaching you know with the hat of a doctor so to speak. yes yeah. and uh, and why why does this uh, hybridity cultural hybridity 
uh, enhance and augment and extend it or allow the or facilitate the kind of broad influence of the Dharamis. And most of them are not Qutub and Benna. Most of them are right. you know, low-level bureaucrats and teachers, right? Yeah. The, uh, the kind of, le of legions, legions of unacknowledged people who've really profoundly shaped modern modern Egyptian culture, mm -hmm. um, because the the sheikhs have lost prestige. Right, their learning no longer has; they, they no longer really possess cultural capital in, in the early twentieth century. For example, mm -hmm. modern knowledge, European inflected knowledge, does possess this cultural capital. So, and by, so, virt by yeah. virtue of being graduates of having, and she talks also about this idea of certified cultural capital because they have these yeah. certificates. Yeah. They are graduates yeah. of an institution as such. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that uh, she described it, of course, as a cultural, which is quite a strong term, but I mean, perhaps not um, in opposite, so to speak. Um, I, I think the contest is uh, ever present. I mean, I, I'm, I understand what you're saying in terms of the cultural capital, and you read them on like Indra Folk Gessink, and, and you think, you know, the way in which the Azhar was really a dilapidated institution in many respects in the, in the 19th century. Um, but still, um, if you read someone like Merhatina uh, and his work on the sort of uh, the Azhar scholars and their engagements in the public realm and the importance that they had in being, in a sense, ambassadors to the, you know, sublime port in um, Istanbul. And you can see that there still is, the Azhar is something which has a kind of cultural capital which is greatly diminished, of course, by attacks on it by, from its former graduates like Hussein and others. But, um, you know, I, I do think that you have all of these players trying to stake their claims as to their importance. I, I mean, I just yeah. want to make one... Uh, it's, other... it's, the book yeah. is basically about this contestation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, who is the authentic representative of modern Egyptian culture? Right. Right. And the Dharamis are quite successful in, in staking that claim, certainly yeah. more successful than the Europhiles, as, yeah. as, 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 as radical as the transformations affected by Europhile mm. ministers is. Yes, yes, but let me just add a kind of but here, which is, uh, and we, you know, she talks about the colonization of the mind drawing on uh, Timothy Mitchell and so on. Um, just the fact that when we discuss this, we're saying, you know, who are more successful as representing modern Egyptian culture. The fact that we use a frame of national rather than, you know, which is a, you know, a Europhile, so to speak, or a, a European category, rather than any kind of uh, notion of being, okay, uh, obviously the Ottoman Empire doesn't exist anymore, but this notion of being part of an ummah or something like that, I think shows just the sheer strength of the, you know, um, European perspective. Indeed, so, and yeah. theoretically, the, I, an important point that, that I haven't mentioned so far is, she draws on Mitchell, but also departs from him. So right. as opposed yeah. to these yeah. kind of post-colonial understandings of modernity, she adopts uh, Shmuel Eisenstadt's notion of multiple modernities. Right. So right. her problem with Mitchell is really that uh, viewing modernity solely as a kind of Eurocentric project obscures the agency right. of local actors who twisted it, inflected it, and adapted it. Right. and mobilized it and put it to work, as it were, in their own context. So Egyptian modernity is not like modernity in, I don't know, Britain. And right. in some right. sense, these, you can think of Dharamis as almost kind of entrepreneurs of a localized modernity, it's right? Think person. of Benna with yeah. his neat beard that she says in his, his tarbush. It's a kind of Islamic modern, uh, as she says. Uh, but, um, it, yeah. I mean, just a sort of point on Banna. And so, you know, Banna, obviously, he's born around, if I recall correctly, 1906, that's 1949. But, um, you know, a figure like that, I, I'm just 
recollecting uh, a remark that my father or my uncle, I can't remember, made about my grandfather. So my grandfather is someone who comes from a, a line of uh, scholars, so, you know, Islamic scholars, uh, ulama, and, um, but in his generation, he went to university, right? And, you know, his father was um, the, the Qazi of Dhaka, uh, meaning uh, he was the sort of, at that point, Qadi basically meant marriage registrar, okay, under sort of like uh, the British Raj. But at that point, um, you know, his father said, look, I'm going to teach you Islamic education at home, but you should go to like a conventional um, school and so on. And um, this is basically because uh, the opportunities didn't exist if you went through the... I mean, this is part of the colonial engineering of, uh, or re-engineering of um, Muslim societies. You yes. bring in your models of education and then those qualifications are now required to be able to qualify in, you know, uh, Absolutely, and and, and this is this is also the case in, in the Egyptian system, of course. Right. Now, the Daramis is somewhat unique because many of them would have come from a kind of Kutab background and so right. on. So it's it's the one form of schooling. Along, she also talks about the uh, Madrasat al Qada al Shari, the school for Sharia judges, founded in or established rather in 1907, just a year before at the Egyptian University, which is folded into Al-Azhar ultimately in 1930. Right. Now, right. it's also a hybrid institution yeah. in some sense, less yeah. important and influential. Ahmed Amin is, is a student of that institution, and it allows one to, tr to transition uh, the Dar al-Ulum even more prominently as, you know, from a religious education to a civil, 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 civil one. Sorry, so it's a kind of in-between institution, yes. So you're saying the Qadash, um, Forgive me, the name Madrasat al Qada Shari. Is that a postgraduate institution or? Um, uh, it's it's and, it's, and you're describing it as more civil. Yes, yeah, so it's an institution uh, for training, actually Sharia judges that includes a, a considerable uh, civil element to the the curriculum. So, for instance, right. you know Ahmed Amin in his memoirs uh, talks about, or his father used to fret about, you know, should I send him to a civil uh, civil school or to a madrasa, and eventually he withdraws him from the civil school. But the right. Dar al Alum, uh, sorry, the Madrasa al Qada al Shari gives him an opportunity, having you know received a religious background, to have, and he becomes, of course, a major figure in Egyptian right. culture, writes very important historical works, and so on. Ta'a Sain, of course, also had, and he describes, and the book discusses it at some length, his, his al Ayyam. Right. Uh, had also he was an Azhari, right? He'd received right. a religious education, right. uh, and his route to civil education was instead through the Egyptian university, which admitted him, right. and you know he eventually became part of the faculty and later minister of of education. Yes. Uh, so I just to kind of, there's so much I can say about the book. So right. one uh, very interesting chapter I found was was the fourth one on the. Uh, the culture wars of the constitutional period. So right. in 1922, the British unilaterally declared that Egypt is independent. And that period from 1923 to 52, when Egypt has a parliament and a, a semi-functioning parliament and a constitution, right. uh, you know, that period is dominated politically, at least when the elections are free and fair by the Waft party, right. led like by the famous Saad Zaghloul until yeah. uh, his death in 1927. And then it's led by Mustafa Nahas. Right. Um, and uh, what happens in the constitutional period? I mean, so the British are effectively ruling Egypt from 1882 onwards, right? They right. Uh, defeat the Arabi Bay Revolt, 18, right. uh, so they uh, which starts in 1881. They invade in 1882, and then so on. 
uh, and Cromer is in office that, from 83. Right, right. And that may provide context for why, in a sense, the ulama needed to be marginalized, because the Arabi revolt was actually in part supported by the ulama. Yeah. Yes, and, uh, and the reformist-minded sheikhs in particular were supportive of Arabi and many of the effendis. Now, what you have, especially from 1882 onwards, is the building of nationalist sentiment. Uh, you know, all, all the way until, uh, in, in complex ways, the 1952 Free Officers Revolution, which, by the way, I think one of the best documents of the, that period is, is, the, is the Cairo trilogy of Naguib Mahfouz, which is you know, a Nobel, Nobel Prize winning okay, author. Um, uh, and what happens, though, by the constitutional period in 1923 is the nationalist... Uh, nationalists kind of split up and fragment. The Waft remains dominant when the elections are free and fair, but uh, you also have the, the Liberal Constitutionalist Party breaking off from them. Now, the, uh, the Waft, led by Saad Zaghloul, were populists, really, right. but they were still, broadly speaking, Europhile elites. Yes, they mm -hmm. were nationalists. Yes, Egypt for the Egyptians and all of this, but they were still Europhiles. You know, uh, you had of course, kind of these, these new, um, new Effendi class were prominent among their ranks, but also you had right. Bays and Pashas. Right. So, you know, uh, the landed uh, aristocracy and, and senior bureaucrats and so on, also in, in the Waft. Um, on the other hand, you have the liberal constitutionalists who encompass uh, many of the major intellectual figures of the, of the constitutional period. People like Ali Abdel Razik, interestingly, yes. Taha Hussein, yeah. Ahmed Lutfi Sayed, Right. Uh, and so on and so forth. Now, these people are less kind of concerned about their popularity. They, they in some sense, see, see themselves as the, the people naturally suited to govern Egypt, mm -hmm. in a sense. Mm -hmm. And they have a major impact on, on culture, really. You know, many of them serve as, uh, as uh, you know, later ministers of education and so on. And, of course, they are frequently accused of irreligion. Ali Abdul Razik in 1925 with his uh, this kind of controversy over Islam was al-Hukum, and uh, Taha Hussein in 1926 with his book on al-Shi'ar al-Jahili, Jahili poetry, right. plagiarized from David Samuel Margulieth. And Ahmed al-Shamsi, by the way, is, yes, in his wonderful book, has obviously discussed, Rediscovering the Islamic discussed this period uh, in, yes, in, in some depth. So, I, I mean, there, there are, as you say, there are so many dimensions. It's a, uh, it's a fascinating book and, you know, it's in conversation with uh, a rich body of scholarship itself. Uh, you mentioned uh, Ahmed Shamsi's book and, um, you know, I was kind of interested on the orality element that was uh, repeated. Um, it, it's something which struck me as unusual. I think it struck you as unusual as well. Um, but uh, in a sense, uh, she has a predecessor perhaps in someone like Charles Hershkind in Ethical Science who talks about the importance of orality in Islamic cultures. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to sort of just comment on, on that very briefly in the sense that, um, you know, to become an advanced scholar, uh, it seems very unlikely that you'd be able to manage at this point in time uh, without also being able to read. But at the same time, you do, in Islamic history, have, you know, a lot of scholars who are dharir, for example, you know, born blind. You think of um, um, al muqrit um, from Andalusia. Uh, actually, uh, the people coming to mind are from Andalusia. Uh, Suhaili, author of the book, um, I forget the uh, uh, I, I forget the name of the precise um, Sira of yeah. the Prophet. Yeah. So you do have, like, and, and you have the notion of Riwaya and Isnad. And I certainly, you know, just sort of to speak of my own experience in a kind of Darul Ulum setting, there's a lot more um, audition, so to speak, and, and listening 
compared to what we would have. So you do read a text as well and hear commentary. So yes, and uh, you know, she draws on Sol and, and Hosler. Uh, she would have suddenly benefited from Ahmed Shamsi's first book, which is essentially about this transition from morality to, to textuality, if you like, in early Islamic culture. Right. Uh, I think she does overplay to some extent the oral and aural element. So she makes right. this curious observation we both remarked on in our conversation mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. one could somehow be uh, enter the, the highest levels of scholarship mm -hmm. or cultivate the high, highest levels of scholarship while being completely illiterate and incapable of writing and reading. Mm -hmm. that, that This seems to be just wrong. Um, I mean, you know, the only, after yeah. the, you know, after the early second century or something like this. Um, I mean, as, as I mentioned, I, I think there are exceptions, but they stand out, I think. Um, so, you know, Ashatlibi is a very important figure in... True, but, yeah. you know, you can only cultivate certain kinds of scholarship, yes. especially yes. Qiraat and, yes. you know, even when it comes to hadith, to the transmission mm. of hadith, certainly, and uh, Garrett Davidson uh, talks yeah, a lot about Al-Hajjar, yeah. the semi-literate stonemason through whom all but the Islamists yeah, that's exactly. So, yeah. you know, and, and, and we sh I don't, you know, we should strike a balance between the textual and aural elements of, mm -hmm. of Islamic culture. I think um, often the emphasis on or orality, especially today, is not entirely, but it's probably a kind of rhetorical gesture to tradition. Because uh, textuality is, is, is extremely important, there's, there's no denying it. But let's, let's give, uh, you know, a counter example. Um, you know, you have a number of scholars from the Najd. Um, who come out and they're blind, and partly, you know, there's some scholarship on the fact that the, um, you know, re the region and the illnesses and the relatively sort of uh, poor access to healthcare uh, ensured that a number of people would lose their sight. They weren't born blind; they would lose their sight in their childhood. Mm. And so you can think of people like Ibn, ba Ibn Berzin right now, uh, Abdulaziz Al Sheikh, as figures like that um, who were blind and major scholars. Yeah. Uh, but as we'll see next week, I mean, if you compare the writing and the output of someone like Ibn Berz. Yeah, to someone like true. El Albani, there, there's, a, there's a difference. Yes, yes, yes. There really is a difference, a world of difference. Yes. Uh, but to, to kind of return uh, more closely to the, the book, uh, which I, I heartily recommend to readers, right. I mean, I, I think it's very important. As, as we said, you cannot escape Egypt, or one cannot escape Egypt. Uh, so the, 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 the Dar al-Ulum is a hybrid institution. Um, and uh, it, it does have this impact, kind of almost behind the scenes or not always in overt ways. Um, and the Dharamis, especially from the 20s onwards, are regarded to some extent as custodians of the Arabic language. So, you know, they, they, they don't eschew entirely traditional forms of learning in the sense that they're still prided, I think, even to this day for their knowledge of the linguistic sciences. And mm. by the way, it's partly because, you know, to, as a result of the influence of the Dharamis right. that to this day, the study of grammar and so on and memorization of classical Arabic poetry still retains an important place in school curricula. Right. In the 1920s and 30s, you have, for instance, proposals, and Ahmed al-Shamsi has, has looked at this as well, that you know, the, the, the script be Latinized, uh, even proposals that you introduce uh, Ahmed uh, yeah. mentioned capital letters, huruf etaj, all kinds yeah, of strange yeah, yeah. things that seem outlandish to us. Yeah. Uh, the Dharamis, from the outset, you know, uh, the, the founding board of the Majma' al-Lugha al-Arabiya, this kind of bastion of, right. of Arabic culture and preservation yeah. and transmission yeah. of the Arabic language, three of the, the, the members on the first four, uh, founding uh, sorry, board uh, 
all Dharamis. That's amazing. Okay. Uh, so they do kind of have this curious cultural role. Yes, um, yes. They are hybrid, so they're not they're not Asharis. So, you know, unlike um, uh, graduates of Al Azhar, uh, they are, uh, you know, they they they're not able to access the higher levels of religious bureaucracy. The you know the Sheikh Al Azhar and the Mufti Diyar Al Masriya will always be graduates of Al Azhar or products of the Azhar, uh, you know, education. Uh, and the Dharamis are also denied what graduates of a purely civil education have. They won't become, uh, you know, extremely senior in the government bureaucracy. They're unlikely to serve as government ministers. Those kinds of posts yeah. uh, are often re reserved for those with a kind of European-oriented education. I mean, that, that's actually, of course, a, a severe limitation which we should highlight um, in the sense that, you know, if you can't, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, if, you, if you look at the British cabinet, right, and, to what extent are you a graduate from Eton? <laughs> I mean, to a, obviously it's not sort of uh, something which is banned. But uh, another institution, of course, that emphasizes classical learning. I mean, uh, and in a sense, the independent school system in, in a place like the UK, the public school system, and the emphasis on dead languages, right? and, and the pride people take in being able to speak them, including people like our prime minister. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to, I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious we should really be giving people the, the opportunity to sort of have their questions. So I'm going to actually hold my tongue for a moment. I mean, this is just a fascinating um, book yes, on a fascinating I, topic. Most of these yeah. are comments. Right. Uh, Yahya so, Haidar's is really the only question as such. And John's, right. I think we've already addressed this question. Yes, I, I mean, just for the sake of... Um, uh, Completeness, uh, should I perhaps um, sh uh, show some of these comments? Or I, sure. I mean, you can perhaps. So, in terms of Jan, uh, you know, he initially asked Jan Islam, um, sorry, uh, how does the book discuss the thought of Banna and Khutb in relation to the role of Darul Ulum in Egyptian society? And so, I, I think you have. Uh, yeah, so the book is yeah. not really addressed to them. It mentions yeah. they are prominent graduates, yeah. but, uh, you know, just examples of graduates. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I actually um, remember um, thinking about, okay, someone needs to do a study of the Darul Ulum ever since I read Gudrun Kramer's book on Hassan uh, where she makes a comment, uh, a sort of a throwaway comment um, about the fact that you know, Banna, despite his father being a uh, in a sense makes a decision to go to Darul Ulum instead. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then she kind of says, which is itself an extremely important institution which deserves study. And I was uh, sort of pleasantly surprised to see uh, her name as one of the committee, I think, <laughs> that examined this uh, dissertation. Okay, so the question uh, from Yahya I'll put that up and I'll just read it and inshallah uh, you can address yes. it. Were these divisions among the Dramis, both faculty and students, over curricular content? Uh, do you, do we know of competing agendas or ideologies within Dharam? Very good question, actually. Excellent question. Uh, to some extent, yes. So she she mentions this letter of Hassan al-Bannata's father who feels betrayed and I think he even refers to them as dogs <laughs> oh my in, the tra in translation as uh, right. those who kind of insisted that no, we want, we want, uh, we want as Dharamis, we want to be Effendis, we don't want to be Shi'ur. Um, so within the student body, there yes. were disagreements about the orientation of, of the institution. Of yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, um, you know, even though they may have, you know, there may have been this, this hybridity, uh, part of the corporate identity of Dharamis is this pride in, and, you know, uh, Abdul Fattah, a friend, uh, can, can, can attest to this. There's still a kind of pride, corporate identity and pride in Dharamis mm -hmm. and their mastery of, of, of 
Arabic linguistic sciences and also of, of Islamic culture in, in some sense. And, uh, I mean, just uh, uh, if I can do a quick add on to that, which is that, I mean, this uh, reflects and I, I have to I didn't get that far into the book um, to only about halfway through, perhaps. Um, in terms of Banna's remark uh, that he he felt betrayed by these people who were wanting to become just straightforward Effendiya, uh, that culture war, that divide between the ulama and the um, Effendiya, so to speak, as representing Islam and secularism in a very sort of uh, vague and hybrid sense, I suppose. But in a sense, it also reflects the fact that someone like Al-Banna is there to try to, you know, Almost he's he's going into the Darul Ulum perhaps somewhat reluctantly because he's being forced to by circumstances. He really wants to have the prestige of being a sheikh and, uh, well, not just there's not much prestige at that point, but he wants that to be prestigious because of his religious sort of background. His father is a sheikh uh, and a you know, respect, re respectable author and um, got an important book on the tartib of uh, Musnad Imam Ahmed. Um, but he's witnessing before his eyes the diminution of that category and, and this in a sense move by the Dharamis to do this kind of a shift perhaps to him is a reflection of that diminution. Yeah and absolutely but you know it's certainly there long you know, even before Hassan al-Banna is born so she speculates you know this bifurcation between civil and religious education is really a result of this European critique and these institutions that um, Muhammad Ali is setting up in you know the 1820s, 1830s, and so on. You know, schools right, for everything right. from midwifery to medicine right, to right, right, right. military engineering and so on. And the yeah. Ottomans basically copy his his innovations. Inc incidentally, many of these institutions Muhammad Ali establishes basically lapse uh, in in the reigns after his death. Mm. And Ismail, mm. reigning from 1863 onwards, his grandson is really the Hadith who really revives this. Ismail right. is rem remembered as the great Europeanizer. And he, in yeah. fact, builds, yeah. and since we, uh, if you're following the news, uh, Egypt is a new capital city is being constructed, right. a kind of new, new Cairo, if you like. Right, right. Uh, but Ismail is the one who uh, builds the kind of modern, uh, modern part of the city in the western part on the Nile. So think of Tahrir and the Egyptian Museum, this kind of area. And, right. uh, and Islam, so-called Islamic Cairo is, is further towards the east where Al-Azhar is. Now, curiously, for the first few decades, when uh, the Dar al-Ulum campus is based in this Darb al-Gamamiz palace, right. where the, the first public lectures are given in 1871 before its formal establishment, uh, topographically it occupies this hybrid space. It's somewhere between New Cairo and old or Islamic Cairo, so it's 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 a curious. Right. Later on, of course, it's it's campus shifts. Yes. yes. Uh, um, so I'm I'm going to if that's if it's alright, I'm getting Yahya Haider's uh, being a prolific questioner. Is a so we're, well, so well, well, kind of give the uh, talhis, put it on the screen, and we can okay, summarize sure. the main. Um, okay, please feel free to give the talhis. That's right. So uh, thank you very much for your uh, excellent question, Yahya. So he adds uh, that an interesting example of this kind of uh, tension is that uh, Sheikh Muhammad Ali Draz was assigned to teach a course uh, at uh, what becomes Cairo University on the history of religions. And he drafts or he writes his own introductory textbook called Ad-Din, mm -hmm. uh, which is full of a kind of critique of European theories of religion. And he had deep, reserva profound reservations about about, about teaching this in the first place. Yeah, so I, just to give you an example, Rashid Rida, in, in, uh, and she, I think one of her mentors is, uh, is Donald Malcolm Reed, who writes, has written the book about Cairo University, or as it's later known, 
uh, Rashid Ridham, the 1930s, is saying Cairo University is a hotbed of atheism. Right. Uh, so, yes, I mean, it's the kind of epistemologies, I mean, the pedagogical strategies are kind of foreign and unfamiliar, and in some cases, you know, deeply problematic. I mean, uh, for, to what extent is that hyperbole, and to what extent is that sort of a, a kind of a critique which is saying yeah. that, you know, the sorts of epistemologies they have would lead to atheism kind of thing? No, I mean, but there was no doubt, actual, you know, actual atheism actual as well. I mean, atheists. if you speak to any, you know, today we would think of the American University of Cairo instead. I've spoken right. to people who, who make basically the same complaints that I was making in the, right. in the 20s and 30s right, right, about right. the Egyptian University. Um, so, yes, it it's kind of occupies this curious cultural space. And, uh, you know, as with any kind of hybridity, some may perceive this as disruptive. So Tahseen's complaint was, they're not modern enough. Mm -hmm. They're still wedded to these uh, you know, old pedagogies and so on. Right. And uh, this, this was his critique. And the Dharamis really felt the sting of that critique, mm. uh, by the way, for, well, for some I mean, decades. If it's coming from someone as influential as Tahseen in uh, the history of Egyptian, modern Egyptian culture, then I can understand that. Um, I, I did want but, to just... But she, she yeah. points out the irony, just to make this last sure, point sure, on the subject. Please. The irony is that uh, when he was, you know, many of Taha Hussein's mentors were, uh, you know, either graduates who had been formed by the Dar al in some sense, uh, including Hussein al-Marsafi, this towering figure in, in modern Arabic literature. And the Dharamis were act very actively involved in the revival of the study of, mm. of Arabic literature. Someone like Abbas al-Ad, is he uh, Darami by chance or? No, not that I, He's I know university. And He's, he, he yeah. kind of, Aqad, like Taha Hussein, like Muhammad Hassanayn Haikal, is actually is a kind of Europhile. Now, the Europhiles in the, in the 1920s and 30s uh, write, or they, they, they indul uh, write this literature of Islam yet, as uh, was it Jankowski and uh, this other, other scholar whose name escapes me have, have discussed, Jamil Jankowski and, Gosh, and Goshoni, sorry, Israel Goshoni right. as well. Right. Uh, and some people see this as a genuine change in direction, but there are other explanations. So, for instance, Hassanayn, uh, Muhammad Haikal famously writes in 1934 his Hayat Muhammad, supposedly right. based on a scientific method, right. which is nonsense, right. of course. It's not, it's not a, like text critical in any way. Sure, sure. Uh, and, well, I mean, it, uh, it just um, sort of, I think, eliminates uh, miracle stories and something along those things lines. Things like right? this. So it's an yeah. idiosyncratic take right. uh, on the seerah. Uh, our yeah. friend, Muhammad al Sheikh, uh, Dr. Muhammad al Maragibi, points out Laqad uh, received only a primary education. So he's an autodidact. Oh, fascinating. Right, right, right. Ma'ahu faqat. He's, he's an oh, autodidact. Oh. What about something like Mustafa Sadiq al Rafi'i and. Like I, I do mean, not know, but Rafa, yeah, you know, I, I really wish Rafa had been mentioned or discussed, mm -hmm. or at least mentioned in the book, because he's part of these culture wars. Right, right, right. In some sense, he's part of these culture wars. Right. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the Europhile intellectuals do kind of uh, pander to Muslim sentiment. Uh, I even Taha Hussein writes Al-Hamish al-Sirah, which is a kind right. of fictionalized account of the seerah seen through the eyes of a marginal figure, this kind of Greek yeah. philosopher and so on. So it's an I mean, interesting yeah, period. Yeah. And uh, our colleague Sami Ayoub is writing very interestingly about um, uh, uh, Abdurazak Sanhuri, who, who he is also kind of reinterpreting, if I understood correctly, as really a Europhile who does kind of 
also address this, this Muslim sentiment in some Very respect. Interesting because, I mean, my uh, main exposure to Sanhuri actually has been through, um, you know, coming across him initially through the works of someone like uh, Muhammad Aymar, who is this Tarami Azhari kind of hybrid who sat on the Hayat Kibar al-Ulama and at the same time, uh, you know, Markaz Bahuth and Majalat al-Azhar and all these things, rahmatullahi alayhi. But at the same time, um, you know, he really sort of is a modernist in the sense that he, he looks at a lot of these modernist figures and, and sees them as sort of like the important figures of uh, modern Egypt and modern Islam in a sense. And so for mm. him, someone like um, Sanhuri Basha, as he puts it, is uh, you know this important figure who brings Islam into sort of the civil code and all of these sorts of things. But uh, it's an act of hybridity in a sense. It's a privileging of you know the the codes that have been developed uh, in the wake of European colonialism. Mm. So yeah, I mean yes, uh, absolutely. And, you know, Ina Till and uh, Guy Beckwell have written on Abdulzat Razak Sanhuri. Right, I, among I will. I mean, hopefully, inshallah, Amr, as you always do, you're going to put in the footnote uh, in in the comments on YouTube um, all of the references, and you very kindly. Well, not all of them, but the, the well, quite, some of the can, important ones, perhaps. Ziryab uh, asks yeah, a question. Can we put yeah. this on the? I'll put it. I'll just quickly read it. If that's right. Has cultural mm -hmm. capital shifted towards the likes of Islam here? <laughs> Uh, and Dr. Muhammad Hidayah, uh, both maverick thinkers, one with connection to Al-Azhar uh, through Abd Shah Abdul Jalil Isa and the other a modernist. I mean, I, I, just very quickly, I also think you have people like Gamal Banna and you have uh, before that Muhammad Abu Raya. That, that's a tradition which is um, quite well established, I, I would think, no? Yes, yeah, so I'm kind of less competent to answer about what's happened in Egypt in, yeah. in, this, in subsequent decades. Uh, yeah. These are contemporary figures. Who are but they are also... And they're, they're, you know, what does she start the book by saying that if you look at the, the, if the influence of groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and, and so on in, in the 21st century, this is not a product solely of the Islamic revival of the 1970s. You can trace the foundations of this influence to institutions like Dar al Alum already in the late 19th century. So in some sense, the foundations for these kinds of maverick intellectuals, as you, I think, aptly describe them, is laid late in the period. I think also of people like Tantawi Johari, uh, on whom Majid Danishka has, has written this important monograph. Tantawi Johari is also a Darami. Right? He writes, he's most famous for this massive tafsir he writes on Islam and science and this Ejaz Ilmi tradition, which he helps inaugurate. Right, right. Uh, when does he die? I, um, uh, gosh, kind of mid-century. Mid okay, mid mid so he's right, is, writing in the early, early to kind of mid-century mid in Egypt. Right, right. Um, so, so yes, the so the, the shot is critiquing. The Riddha is critical. Now, right. the curious thing is that, as she says, you know, all of these trends you see, whether it is people like the Daramis, for instance, or Rashid Rida, whom she says pursues Abdul's legacy in a more conservative direction, or indeed Ta Hussein, uh, these are all, in some sense, the children, the spiritual children of Muhammad Abdul. Right. I'm literally, so Sa'ad Zaghlul is literally uh, you yeah. know, influenced by Abdul. Uh, Ta Hussein's memoirs describes explicitly, and, and Hussein has this curious line she mentions in, in Al Ayam that. Um, the, the, the people who truly mourned Abdu when he died with Effendi and not the Shiuch. There was lots of hostility in Azharov, as we've seen yeah, in the yeah, yeah. previous week when discussing Junaid's book uh, on Muti'i. Uh, but you know, all of them, uh, so the, 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 the liberal constitutionalists like 
Ta'a Hussein, I mean, he was a, a close student of Abdul, and he pursued his legacy, but in a, a kind of secularizing uh, direction. I mean, so you have really this curious, yeah, yeah because curious Ahmed Lutfi Sayyid, as far as I understand, is also part of Abdul's circle, and, and this is something which I, you know, I have to do more reading on, but, um, you know, it's just curious that Abdu is this fount for all of these tendencies. It doesn't surprise me that the Shuyukh didn't like him particularly, because he's very critical of the Azhar. Um, and, you know, it's these inst institutions always take a long time to change. I, I work in an institution which is very much like that. And um, and so <laughs> I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, it's it's quite fascinating that Abdu should also be this inspiration for people like Lutf. For people like uh, Hussein in, in the kind of secularizing. And to give an example that is not really the same, but also fascinating to me personally, and we I hope we will get to this in a future week with Sir Ali Tareen's wonderful book, Defending Muhammad Sallallahu and Modernity, is a figure like Shah Wali Allah, who's claimed by groups that make takfir of each other. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the Brelwis, the Diobandis, right, the right. Ali Hadith to some extent. Right, right, right. So uh, these, you know, major figures like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, I mean the, actually, the just as much. Yeah. You know, Shah Abdul Aziz Abdullah is a funding figure of, in a sense, as far as I understand, of the Aladdin's movement. He's a direct descendant of Shah Waliullah. Yeah, so through through Abdul Aziz, I think is. Yeah, Shah Abdul Aziz Mahadis Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yes. I, I look forward to that week as well. Um, you know, with Shah Ali Tareen. Of course, that's going to be, I believe, postponed until after Ramadan, inshallah. Yes. Uh, and, so. Uh, yeah. We've already got an idea of which books we'll discuss uh, up to Ramadan and then uh, subsequently. Well, we, lots of exciting books until then and also after Ramadan. And so I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one um, uh, who thinks this, but this is just really a wonderful opportunity, Omar, to get this, uh, um, what's the way to put it, you know, uh, encyclopedic uh, insight into our field. That's that's and, very sweet uh, of you, but I should say that uh, you know, suddenly in this episode we are dependent on Hillary, uh, and we thank her for her excellent book. We're, from which we're I've always sort of, of course. Uh, I mean, we're, we're actually always completely dependent on the authors of a Given Weekend, and I think we, you know, actually find ourselves drawing on all multiple authors throughout um, this process uh, from past weeks as well. But I think Hillary's book. Um, really has just been uh, for me it's it's been a kind of guilty pleasure almost, <laughs> in the sense that uh, you know so much of it links to what i'm doing right now um that uh, you know i'm with with all the deadlines that we're always uh, dealing with to be able to set all of that aside and spend some time in this book has just been a pleasure for me and i hope more people will take the opportunity to get their hands on it and read it um Absolutely. but uh i'm sure uh sort of we will have occasion to refer back to it many times um no but of course uh, for next week i wanted to ask you Omar, what you had in mind sure so next week i'm excited to say we shall be exploring imad hamda's book uh, which i hold up to the screen salafism and traditionalism scholarly authority in modern islam which is primarily an exploration of al-albani and his life uh, and his legacy, Muhammad Nasruddin al-Albani, the famous Salafi uh, scholar and, and muhaddith. And uh, so perhaps on. the most important scholar of hadith of the last century. Um, yeah, I yeah. think that's 
fairly straightforward. To, to well, I mean, like, well, there are lots of competitors, very, very rich century, but, but yes, inshallah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yes, I mean, like uh, as as Ahmed, you were mentioning, uh, Ahmed Hamda is a, a scholar whose work I've read for a long time, and and I I've endorsed the book on the cover myself. <laughs> so you know, it's but uh, of course uh, that doesn't mean I'm going to be reading it as a partisan. You know, I I think we'll have a very uh, engaging uh, session, inshallah, uh, on the text, and I really look forward to that. And I look forward to uh, seeing you in a week's time, as as always, Omar. Um I'm just, uh, I, I wanted to give Yahya Haider the opportunity to say a couple of comments. He said his saying very quickly, um, relating to this week's topic. Interestingly, Taha Hussein tells us in his memoir that he was inspired to turn from uh, Islamic studies uh, to adab uh, when he began memorizing the Alfiya. Yes. And, uh, so yeah. I should stress a kind of final observation on the book. These kinds of yeah. self-narratives. Mm. Think of the memoirs of people like Taha Hussein, also Ahmed Amin, and Darami's also write their own memoirs, of, of course. course. Yes. Um, these very often have a kind of narrative in both of these cases of a transition from uh, your uh, from the rural to the urban and from religious to civil education, mm. and. Uh, I, all of these discussions of the Dara Ulum and its role are about more than simply the Dara Ulum. There are these larger debates about Egyptian culture and its direction and its orientation and the question of, of authenticity. So this book addresses all of those questions in an intelligent, sophisticated way. And uh, I, I end by encouraging you all to, to read it. Thank you very much, Omar. Uh, always a pleasure. And inshallah, I will see you. Uh, well, we will see everyone uh, in a week's time. And until then, take care. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.